He's recorded 38 albums, written 28 books, and is host to a weekly podcast. You know his songs, El Shaddai, Love Crucified Arose, and Emmanuel. Michael Card is an award-winning musician and performing artist. He also travels to Israel frequently. His insights about the Nazarene. That's our focus coming up. Welcome again to The Land and the Book. It's the one-hour program that makes you feel like you're right there in the Middle East without ever having to leave your home. I'm John Geiger, and our guide, as always, the incessantly curious Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's been to Israel more than 100 times. And Charlie, I know you are looking forward to getting back over to the Holy Land soon. I am, John. I'm so excited. Uh, Hopefully by this summer, it'll start opening up, uh, but it can't come soon enough. Well, let's take a look at current events, the opening segment of four on this program, where we look at stories that are developing in the Middle East as of the last few days. Story one, the deadline has now passed for Israel's political parties to submit their lists of candidates for the upcoming election. What do the different lists of candidates and parties tell us about what to expect in the coming weeks? You know, for most Americans, Israel's elections must seem like an episode from the Twilight Zone. 39 parties are registered to run in this election, and that's after a number of parties had to drop out. Two candidates that were forming parties to the left of center dropped out after not generating enough excitement with voters. One was the mayor of Tel Aviv. Uh, His party was initially expected to win as many as eight seats. Uh, Both those parties, though, tried to form an alliance with the Labor Party, but were turned down. In fact, one of the main differences in this election is that fact that parties are not forming the alliances they did before. In the past, uh, different parties would pool their resources in a bid to gain more seats in the Knesset. But after the election, a number of those alliances fell apart. Uh, The leaders felt free to abandon their partner who helped them make it to the dance, so to speak. As a result, the larger parties were less open to form alliances this time. Uh, They'd prefer smaller parties to drop out so that they could capture those voters for themselves. Hmm. The Arab Joint List is a similar example. That was an alliance of four Arab parties, but it's also fractured for this election, which means likely there'll be less Knesset seats overall for Israeli Arabs. And then some of the fringe parties dropped out. Uh, You'll like this one, John. The Pirate Party (laughs) failed to register their slate of candidates in time, and that's why there are only 39 parties running in the election. Now, Of those parties, only 13 or so have any real shot of getting into the Knesset. A party needs to capture at least three and a quarter percent of all votes cast to cross that threshold. And that's why so many parties will end up with no seats at all. Uh, Remember, in Israel, people are voting for their party and not for individual leaders like we do here in the States. So what do we know about the election? Well, we know Netanyahu's party, Likud, is almost certainly going to end up with the largest number of seats. But that'll only be about a fourth to a third of the number needed to form a government. We know the majority of seats in the Knesset are probably going to be won by parties to the right of center. Uh, You would expect them to be natural allies of Netanyahu. But the leaders of at least two of those parties have said they will not join a Netanyahu-led government. While some are hoping that the anti-Netanyahu parties will all unite together to force him from power, well, the problem is the anti-Netanyahu parties stretch from the right all the way to the far left on the political spectrum. In fact, the only thing they have in common would be a desire to overthrow Netanyahu, and that's not a good base on which to build a coalition. So in the end, don't count out Netanyahu just yet. He's still the master politician who understands how the political system really works, including how to pull together a coalition. But one thing's certain, John, the next six weeks will not be dull. (laughs) 
And we'll follow along with you, Charlie, here on The Land and the Book as developments uh, continue to turn in. Interesting story. The number of sinkholes around the Dead Sea is predicted to double in the next few years. What is causing all the sinkholes and, and what can be done to stop them, Charlie? Yeah, you know, over the past decade, about 7,000 sinkholes have opened up along the shore of the Dead Sea. And now this geologist who's been studying them has predicted the number will double to about 14,000 just in the next few years. Now, they're caused by a combination of factors uh, that have reduced the volume of water flowing into the Dead Sea. You know, water's been pumped out for agriculture, dams have been built, uh, and the extended drought in the region has cut the amount of rainfall. But as the Dead Sea drops, the underground salt domes are being formed. And then as fresh water flows off the cliffs into the sea during the winter rains, that fresh water dissolves those salt domes and allows the land above to collapse into the hole. Hmm. Uh, These sinkholes have forced Israel to change the roadway along the Dead Sea, especially in the area of Engedi. Now, while some are calling for conservation efforts to increase the flow of water back into the Dead Sea and then to somehow fill in the sinkholes, others believe that's just an impossible goal. They think the problem will resolve itself once all the salt domes collapse and the sinkholes form a new shoreline for the sea itself. But in the meantime, the sudden formation of sinkholes will continue to be a major problem around the shore of the Dead Sea. If you're just tuning in, this is The Land and the Book, a broadcast from Moody Radio that makes you feel like you're in Israel. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a guy who's been to Israel more than 100 times. I'm John Geiger, glad to tag along as we're working our way through a look at current events on this opening segment. Big Ben in London is really a Palestinian clock that was stolen by England. At least that's a story that's circulating now among some Palestinians. Charlie, what is the story behind this apparent fake news? John, it's almost hard to know where to begin. I've got to start, though, by saying that Big Ben in London actually refers to the the largest bell in the tower and not to the tower itself or to the clock like the story would suggest. Now, the story has been actually circulating for a while, and it keeps resurfacing with a few new details getting rearranged. The basic story goes like this. The clock in London originally stood in a tower on top of Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. It was placed there by the Ottoman Sultan, only to be stolen by the British in 1922 and shipped to England, where it was transferred to the British Museum and then later to the tower next to Parliament. Another version of the story says that it was the mechanism inside the clock that was stolen and taken to London, where it now runs the clock. Now, here's the reality. The Turkish Sultan did put a clock tower on Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. The entire tower was about 42 feet tall and was built in 1909. There are old pictures of Jaffa Gate showing the tower and the clock. After capturing Jerusalem in World War I, the British eventually decided to remove the clock and tower in the 1920s because they saw it as an eyesore that detracted from the character of the old city walls. But the clock and tower in London were built in 1859, Hmm. 50 years before the clock and tower were set up in Jerusalem. The clock in London was designed and built by a British clockmaker. The clock in Jerusalem was built by the Germans. So the bottom line is the clock in London with Big Ben wasn't originally in Jerusalem. So how'd the story arise? Well, it's a combination of several factors. First, there were prominent clocks in both Jerusalem and London, and the clock in Jerusalem was taken down by the British. And as the story got passed down from parents to children, the size of the Jerusalem clock grew. Remember, to a child, it probably seemed massive. Mm. And since it was taken down by the British, it might have seemed logical to assume they took it to London as spoils of war. 
And of course, then they heard about London's famous clock and just assumed it was the same one. And as the story was retold, it became part of the collective memory of the people who simply accepted it as true. And there's a good lesson in this, John, for all of us. Fake news usually has some element of truth behind it. And that makes it easier to believe, especially if it's told to us by someone we trust. Uh, This is a story that's a good reminder why it's so important to check sources and not simply believe everything you hear. Cancer is the dreaded C word that causes fear and anxiety. We've had it in our house, and I know you have too, Charlie. That's why several reports coming out of Amazing Israel are so encouraging. Tell us about the new approaches to fighting cancer that are being developed there. Yeah, these reports are exciting. One new therapy involves an anti-cancer drug that activates three separate immune pathways to enable the body's own defenses to fight the cancer cells. This new approach is described as a biological antibody that prohibits cancer cells from inhibiting the work of the body's immune cells. The Israeli company Bion Biologics has signed an agreement with a French firm to continue development They've also received approval to begin clinical trials in the U.S. and Israel by mid-2021. In a second development, researchers at Israel's Technion Institute have discovered a new pathway to attack cancer cells without causing damage to surrounding healthy cells. Though it's rather technical, they found that cancer cells rely exclusively on the cytosol in cells for the folate cycle, a process essential to the production of DNA and RNA, while regular cells can switch between cytosol and the mitochondria for the folate cycle. By targeting the cytosol with chemotherapy, the process can, in theory, allow cancer cells to die, while non-cancerous cells simply switch to using the mitochondria. Specific applications of this discovery might be a little way out, but it has great long-term potential. Now, these are welcome advances from amazing Israel that just might help make cancer more treatable in the not-too-distant future. And that's our look at current events from the Middle East. We've talked about everything. Politics, sinkholes around the Dead Sea, Big Bend in London, and new developments with regard to fighting cancer in Israel. Charlie, your devotional today is based in Hosea 1. Where are we going? We're heading to Jezreel. We're going to look at the name that has four different meanings. That'll be a great devotional. But before that, questions and answers. And before that, a conversation with singer and songwriter Michael Carr on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book, Segment 2. Hey, welcome back. I'm John Geiger asking, did you ever think of the life of Christ as a song? A song with lyrics, rhythm, and meter. A song maybe with tempo changes and, and dynamics. Well, Michael Card has. In fact, he's given the Nazarene a whole lot of thought. We'll visit with him after we tank up on ideas for reaching out to our Jewish friends, the love of Yeshua. Sometimes we have lots of enthusiasm for reaching out to our Jewish friends, but what we lack is an undergirding, a foundation in prayer. Dan Stroll is with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Your thoughts on the role of prayer and and how I reach out to my Jewish friends and neighbors, Dan. Well, as you just suggested, prayer is essential to all things. This is a work that only God can do. Only God can bring light where there's darkness and life where there is death. And I know that it was a flat-out miracle that I came to faith in Jesus. And so I know that there were many, many people praying for me, not just the person who was witnessing to me, but uh, many other people as well. And I would encourage people to pray 
at least two things in reference to sharing with their right. Jewish friends. One is that their own heart would beat with God's love for his people. Mm. And the best way to do that is to spend time in the Old Covenant Scriptures and be reminded over and over and over again about the nature of God's unconditional love for his Jewish people and his commitment to fulfilling his plan in the nation and asking God to give you the same kind of love for his people. And what's that second prayer angle you were talking about? And then, of course, pray for the hearts of your Jewish friends to be open, Mm -hmm. to long for God. They have a natural, they are the natural branches of the olive tree, and they are apart from the God who loved them and gave them their identity. Thanks for that encouragement to pray and pray very specifically. Dan Stroll with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago, here on The Land and the Book. You know his songs, El Shaddai, Love Crucified Arose, and Emmanuel. Michael Card is an award-winning musician and performing artist. He's recorded over 38 albums, authored more than 28 books, is host to a weekly podcast, and has written for a wide range of magazines. His many books include Scribbling in the Sand, that's a favorite of mine, A Fragile Stone, another great one, Inexpressible, and the Biblical Imagination series on the Four Gospels. Michael lives in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, rather quaint uh, suburb of Nashville, where with a group of close friends, he pursues racial reconciliation and neighborhood renewal, as well as his book projects. He and his wife, Susan, have four children and two grandchildren. Michael travels frequently, teaching and sharing his music at biblical imagination conferences and also facilitates annual Life of Christ tours to Israel. Thanks for connecting with us today, Michael. Hey, John. How you doing? Well, we're trying to behave ourselves. That was a wonderful uh, summary of my whole life. That's something you could say in about 30 seconds. That's pretty cool. <laughs> we, we do our best. So uh, I'm looking at the opening chapter of your new book, The Nazarene, 40 Devotions on the Lyrical Life of Jesus. And in it, you suggest if you listen, really listen to the life of Jesus, you will hear a subtle resonance. Now, let me stop right there. Isn't one of our biggest problems the fact that we don't stop? We don't listen enough to the life of Jesus. And if that's the problem, what's the solution? That's a great insight. Um, My mentor, a guy named William Lane, used to say that the best way to love someone is to listen to them. Mm. And that that goes for your wife or your husband or your children, I mean, your friends, and most especially God. And uh, I think what Bill shared with me all those years ago, that was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that really changed everything for me. So the, the, the focus for me has been, how do I really listen? Listen with all my heart, all my soul, you know, with everything that I am the way Deuteronomy 6 tells me that I should. And I think that's, I think you're right. That's what I mean when I say Jesus has, life has this resonance to it. It really resonates with truth and light and uh, all the things I need. I suspect the, the, the short answer to that question might be time. You know, we just, we need to choose to invest that time, as you say, to listen. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it, it always takes time. But it, before that, even, I think it, it takes developing the desire, you mm. know, wanting to listen. Yes. And yeah. I think the way to develop the desire is to realize, you know, the benefit, what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. You write, his deeds and words speak with beauty and mystery, both comforting and and confusing us. Now, there's a tension there. We almost wish it could be one way or the other. Michael, is this a contemporary Christian culture issue, or have believers throughout the centuries struggled with this tension? 
Oh, I think the very Jesus' very first followers clearly struggled with this tension. Uh, uh, he's been described as a, a person who, who uh, was a disturbing presence. A lot of people were confused, or, or certainly a lot of people were amazed and, and became followers and gave their lives for him. But some people, you know, were offended. And when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, John tells us a lot of people just walked away. Yeah. But he was this person who he is. We think he's in the present tense because he is. Uh, he is this person that you, no one has ho-hum response to him. You mm-hmm. either drop your nets and la- leave everything and follow him or you walk away because it's just too much. Yeah. And he's that sort of, he has that sort of dynamic. If it's really him you're looking at. He's recorded over 38 albums, authored 28 books, is host to a weekly podcast, and writes for a wide range of magazines. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book, Michael Card. You've said these 40 meditations lead us to a place where Jesus becomes real and we can hear him Mm. with both hearts and minds. Now, that's a lofty goal, so let me ask, what was the writing process like? Well, this was actually uh, the most enjoyable book I've ever written because I had already done all my homework. The the essays are all based on lyrics from uh, four CDs on, on the Gospels. And um, anybody who knows me knows that I, I hate writing, but I love researching. Hmm. And so uh, when it came time to write these down, uh, I had all the all the information in my head. So this this writing project was was a lot of fun. I'm working on a project now that's about to kill me because it's all work and no play. But mm-hmm. um, but even writing, you know, we're talking about listening. Even writing, I think, is a matter of listening. It's, it's a sort of prayer. Yeah. You uh, lead an annual Life of Christ tour to Israel. How have those tours impacted your thoughts in this book? Well, they've, they've been huge for me because what they do is, uh, for example, when, when the gospel mentions the Sea of Galilee, I have that in my head. I know what it smells like. I know I know how small it is in the first place. I was amazed at how small it is. It really is just a lake. I have that world in my head. I know what it feels like to walk, you know, from you know, one place to the next, and uh, what it's like to to wander around in the Judean wilderness. One of the things we do is lead people in the wilderness for an hour. Jesus was there 40 days. Uh, most people can't barely take an hour. But that that's what that's done for me. It, his world is in my head, and, uh, and that really helps to listen to the Gospels. Michael, take us to another place in Israel, or a memory of yours from Israel, that speaks to this lyrical life of Christ. Well, my favorite place is Capernaum uh, because that really is, that's his world. Uh, the, in the gospel, they'll say Jesus came home, and that means Capernaum. So uh, I like to think he lives with Peter. We're not sure, it doesn't say, but I think that there's a real good possibility that that's where he lived. And we have that house. We have the ruins of Peter's house, which is also phenomenal. You stand there and look at it in, in the rooms, the walls of his house, and uh, you think which one of those rooms might have been Jesus' room, which is pretty cool. But the the lake is there, all those sounds, the contours of the hills are those are the hills that he knew. And a lot of people don't realize that Jesus' world is filled, at least in Galilee, is filled with birds. It's a major flyway over uh, between Africa and and, uh, and Asia, and so there's. Every kind of bird you can possibly imagine. There's uh, wagtails, 
flocks of pelicans. I don't know if you've ever seen a flock of pelicans. They're like B-52 bombers. <laughs> They're huge. Uh, and that's part of his world. Yeah. And, um, and again, the whole purpose is so when I, when I listen to the Gospels now, I have those sounds in my head, and I have that world in my head. His many books include Scribbling in the Sand, A Fragile Stone, Inexpressible, Michael Carr joins us today on The Land and the Book. You know, there is a segment of the evangelical world that I think is uncomfortable with, quote, too much imagination when it comes to Scripture. We're afraid of mysticism, and we certainly don't want to see Scripture watered down or otherwise twisted. How do you respond? Well, I I talk a lot about the imagination, and I think the people that are afraid of that word, well, in one sense you should be, because the imagination is a very powerful thing. When King James uses the word, he only uses it in a negative sense. He'll say, when men in their sinful imaginations. So it is, it's kind of a mixed, it's a mixed bag. But for me, biblically, I think the imagination is what bridges our hearts and our minds. And the the central creed of Judaism uh, from Deuteronomy 6 is that we should listen. Shema is the word, listen, that God is one and that we love him with all of our hearts mm. and souls and with everything we are. And the, the question comes back, you know, if, if I'm supposed to love God by listening to him, how do I listen to him with all my heart and all my mind? And I think the biblical answer is you engage with your imagination. Uh, that's what Jesus does. And yeah. when Jesus teaches, he teaches in parables that you must engage with. He will not explain. He, one time he explains a parable in private to the disciples. Right. Otherwise, you have to engage with your imagination or you're not going to get it. So share an example from the book that illustrates something that confounds you about the person of Jesus. Well, there are all kinds of little things that bother me. Uh, um, why, for example, does he take the disciples 25 miles, uh, they walk up to uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is a very pagan town. Mm-hmm. It's filled with uh, pagan temples. Why does he take them up there? That makes no sense. <laughs> that still makes no sense to me. Now, I've, I've read the different answers. My mentor, uh, William Lane, said, well, he wanted them to make their confession in the face of raw paganism. That, to me, is not a good enough reason to walk 25 miles, but, uh, <laughs> you know, what do I know? <laughs> Uh, but there, there are things like that that mystify me, and there, there are things that used to mystify me that I'm beginning to figure out. For example, what I just said, you know, why, why he doesn't explain things. That used to really bother me. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, you let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Jesus' way of saying, if you don't pay attention, if you don't engage with this, you're not going to get it, and I'm not going to explain it to you, because yeah. that's not how his teaching works. How are you different as a result of researching and writing this book? Uh, you know, we, we often talk about the impact that we want to have on readers, but what about you personally? Yeah. Well, I would love to say that I, uh, I know him better, and I think I probably in some ways I know him better, but I think what happens is that you just have more questions. You know, I have, I have more, more and harder questions that I'm, I'm, I'm sorting out. Uh, for example, here, here's, here's an example of, uh, this is my life. Welcome, welcome into my mind. Okay. Okay. I, I've just spent months reading articles about uh, the difference uh, between Greek and Hebrew. And uh, Jesus speaks both Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. He probably is, you know, speaks three languages. But here, here's, the, here's the issue, John. Greek language is, is based on nouns, and Hebrew is based on verbs. So 
Jesus thinks in verbs, if he thinks in Hebrew. I mean, I know he's the son of God, and there's more going on than just that. But in his, in his humanity. And so what am I doing right now? I'm going through all the words of Jesus and trying to understand how he thinks of verbs. That's what my life is like. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's a favorite chapter for you in this book and why? Oh, gee, I don't know. It's, it's like picking a favorite child. You know, that that's hard to say. In fact, if I had the book, I don't have the book in front of me. I would slip through and tell you. But in general, the, the chapters that deal with the harder questions, the songs that deal with the harder questions mm-hmm. uh, are my favorite, favorite ones. The book is called The Nazarene, 40 Devotions on the Lyrical Life of Jesus. It's by Michael Card, our guest, whom we're going to have to say goodbye to, but uh, appreciate your time today. Hey, I appreciate so much you giving me this time, and, and uh, it, it means a lot. It's a great encouragement to me, so thanks, John. You know, I have to say, when I read your book on Mark, my reaction was, oh, no, I don't want it to end. I, I was so sad when it was over. That just caught me by surprise. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I'm working in. Uh, I'm working through Mark right now, which is Peter's gospel, right? You know that. And uh, Mark, it's weird. I don't know if anybody that Mark is their favorite gospel. It's usually John or Luke, but Mark is kind of becoming my favorite gospel. Yeah. How weird is that? No, it's not weird at all because it is mine. <laughs> it is mine. He cuts to the chase right away, immediately. Oh, boom, boom, does. boom. <laughs> yeah, he does. I, I, and that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm appreciating more and more about Mark. Before you think. Oh, he, I need more information. It's too short. But no, it's, you know, of course, they're all perfect because they're all God's Word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate to let you go because I'd love to talk further, but we got to run. You got to run, and we'll do it again sometime. Well, I really, I really do mean it. I appreciate this so much. It's a huge encouragement to start my day like this. So thanks, John. Thank you, Michael. Michael Card, who's written 40 devotions on the lyrical life of Jesus. Charlie Dyer is next here on The Land and the Book. It's nice to have your company today at The Land and the Book. No point in doing what we do without you being a part of it. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has his Bible open for a very good reason. We're about to address questions that have come your way as you look over the Scriptures. And by the way, if you've got one of those questions that have been kind of rolling around in your head, why not send us an email and Charlie can get to that question. You connect with us with a visit to our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you'll find a link to email us. Let's get started, Charlie, with Marsha's question. She says, hello, I really enjoy listening to your program. It's it's fresh air to my soul. That's a nice uh, thought. Thank you, Marsha. It is. Now, uh, her question from Genesis 1, she says it records many statements of God said, and it was so. My question is, how long has water existed? <laughs> There's not a statement regarding God's creation of water on a specific day. Also, I noticed that when the waters were gathered together, the dry land appeared. That appears to be a similar deal, that ground may have existed beneath the deep. And it makes me wonder how long dirt has existed. I believe Almighty God made everything. I'm just kind of wondering about these details. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, the short answer to the question is that we simply don't have all the details. Now, thankfully, we do know some. Genesis 1-1 tells us God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, it says. Now, I take that as the beginning of time as we might understand it. Now, God, of course, has always existed eternally. Uh, The creation of everything on the earth, including water, can be traced back to this point when God chose to create the universe ex nihilo. It literally means out of nothing. 
Now, at the beginning of the creation process in Genesis 1, it says the world is formless, dark, empty, and wet. God then creates light, and uh, he creates the expanse to separate the water on earth from the heavens above and, and then dry land. Uh, Genesis 1.9 does say God gathered the waters covering the earth into one place so that that dry land could appear. Uh, the word appear there actually comes from the word to see. It has the idea of the dry land becoming visible at that point. Now, we're not told how that happens. Uh, and did God cause the earth to rise up out of the water, or did he create seas into which the water flowed, exposing the land? Well, we just don't know. What we do know is that since 1-1 says God created the heavens and the earth, the land itself must have existed from the beginning, even if it was covered by water. Uh, one last point. I also believe the statements that each part of this creation were completed in a 24-hour period of time. You know, it says there was evening, there was morning the first day. Uh, so the creation of the earth on day one uh, and its rise from the sea on day three only preceded the creation of humans by a few days since man was created on day six. Now, as a result, I don't see this necessarily causing confusion on the age of living beings on the earth. I believe in a young earth and a six-day creation. I do too. And that's Dr. Charlie Dyer with question one here on The Land and the Book, this third segment of the broadcast. A question from Tim, who takes us to 2 Samuel 15, 7, where David's son Absalom sat at the king's gate counseling people. Some versions say after 40 years, and some say after four years. 1 Kings 2.11 says David reigned for 40 years. Now, you would figure his reign would have been longer if his son sat at the king's gate for 40 years. Well, 40 years or even four years is a long time to hold bitterness and unforgiveness towards your father. Of course, it ended up killing Absalom. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I have to start first with the, the second part of that question. Yeah, it is a long time, whether it's four or 40, to hold bitterness uh, in one's heart just uh, it twists our soul. And, and that was one of the problems with Absalom. But now, in terms of the time, there are actually two possible ways to resolve the apparent chronological problem there. Some Septuagint manuscripts and the Syriac translation and the Jewish historian Josephus have four rather than 40. Now, if that's correct, then the number 40 would be a copious error. Uh, that is, the number four would have been the original number in the manuscript, and then later as they were copying, it got copied incorrectly, uh, but we would have four. However, if the number in the original manuscript was indeed 40, I'm not sure if that provides enough time to include the reigns of both Saul and David. So another more satisfying possibility is that it could refer to the time since David had actually been anointed as king. Uh, David reigned as king for a total of 40 years, but he was anointed as king by Samuel prior to that. Uh, that event is in 1 Samuel 16, uh, where he took the horn of oil and anointed David. So it likely took place about 10 years before David started to reign over Judah and Hebron. And if Absalom's revolt took place in the final 10 years of David's 40-year reign, it would all seem to fit. Now, both ideas are possible. Uh, I'm not always sure which is the best explanation, though I do take the number four probably being the better translation in that case. A question from Dan, who takes our focus and puts it on the Sea of Galilee, wanting to know, does anyone know the history on the building of the control dam there and whether the water levels at the Sea of Galilee, whether the shorelines would have been much different in New Testament times? Yeah, that dam, it's called the Dagania Dam, was built by the British in the early 1930s to help regulate the water level and help control flooding. Uh, they repositioned the spot where the Jordan River flowed out of the Sea of Galilee. 
but the dam itself didn't greatly change the size of the lake. You know, uh, the water level of the Sea of Galilee normally stays within about a 20-foot range throughout most of the year and, in fact, throughout most of its history. Now, one way we know that is by the position of the ancient cities along the shore, including their stone docks that have been uncovered. If the water had been much lower, the towns, along with their docks, would have needed to extend further into the lake. If the water had been much higher, well, places like Capernaum and Magdala and Tiberias would have been submerged. So I believe the original course of the Jordan River helped regulate the level. When the water dropped too low, the discharge from the lake into the river would have been reduced, allowing the water to stay there in the lake. But when the winter rains were heavy, the water flowing out would have been a torrent, helping keep the lake from becoming too full. Judy wants to know, could Har Karkom in southern Israel be Mount Sinai? I saw a video by an Israeli archaeologist suggesting it is the actual site. What do you think? Yeah, I've known about Har Karkom for quite some time. In fact, uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, uh, we, we all call it BAR, uh, actually had an article on this way back in 1988. Now, I think the key, though, is one of the last sentences that Dr. Anadi made in his speech when he said there were no late Bronze Age remains discovered at the site. Uh, that's a major problem since the period extends from 1550 to 1200. So I hold to an early date for the Exodus, about 1445 B.C., some others hold to a later date around 1200 BC, but not finding any materials from either of those periods at Har Karkom would be a problem. Of course, that's an argument from silence, but since he's been excavating the site for nearly 40 years and has discovered like 1,500 different spots at the, in that immediate region, I think not finding any remains from the biblical time period of the Exodus is a major problem. I, I still personally believe that Mount Sinai was somewhere in the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. Brian listens to us on WCRF 103.3 FM in Cleveland, and he says, I appreciate the broadcast. Well, thank you, Brian. He takes us to John 3, verse 5, where Jesus told Nicodemus about water and the Spirit. And there's been debate over the years as to what water here refers to. Can you give me your thoughts? Yeah, and I'm going to answer in a slightly roundabout way. Now, I start with Nicodemus's response to the statement and, and then Jesus's reply. Nicodemus, after Jesus said, except a man be born again, Nicodemus said, how can this be? He was baffled by what Jesus had said, but then note Jesus's response. He says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. He expected someone who knew the Old Testament to understand exactly what he meant when he talked about being born of water and of the Spirit. And that leads me to ask, so where in the Old Testament are spiritual birth, water, and the Spirit connected? And the only passage I know is Ezekiel 36. Being born again, which can be translated being born from above, involves a cleansing from sin. It's pictured in Old Testament times by ceremonial washing with water and the impartation of God's Holy Spirit to provide divine enablement to do what's right. Both Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 describe this new covenant blessing God was promising for Israel. Jeremiah actually calls it the new covenant, and he says it'll replace the Mosaic covenant. And I think that's why Jesus expressed amazement that Nicodemus didn't immediately grasp what he was saying. And in Ezekiel, the, the water refers ceremonially to a cleansing from sin, and the Spirit refers to God imparting His Spirit into their lives. So God promised to give Israel a new birth that involved those two elements, and I think that's what was behind Jesus' first words to Nicodemus, and then his surprise that Nicodemus didn't understand uh, these two crucial passages. One last question from a frustrated listener who uh, is concerned about babies and small children uh, in the local church meeting. She says, our church is too small for a nursery. There isn't room 
uh, for a place like that. Some of the moms don't want their babies in a nursery even. They want the family to sit together for worship, but this has become a problem with crying and outbursts. The moms don't seem to mind this. You know, they use verses like Psalm 8-2 and Matthew 21-16. The scriptures seem silent on this subject. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and i, I got to answer several ways. First, the early church didn't have nurseries. Uh, church would have been more of a family affair. Children would have been part of the service. At the same time, I suspect that mothers would do what they could to keep their babies from creating a disturbance. But having everyone together was just a normal part of the service at that time. Now, second, uh, the verses that were quoted there, the like Matthew 21, they really don't speak to the issue of babies crying. They, they refer to children speaking praise to God. In fact, in Matthew 21, it actually says the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Mm. And that leads to my third point. I think the best principle here is Ephesians 4.32. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in Christ God forgave you. And uh, so we're to forgive as God forgave. For those without kids, it could mean overlooking those distractions and realizing young mothers also want to hear God's word. Great advice. And there's more to come in Charlie's devotional next on The Land and the Book. It's an honor to have you with us here today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger saying I mean that because we realize you've got lots of choices in listening these days. It's not just FM radio stations or AM stations. No, it's listening on your iPad, your iPhone, your, whatever it is you've got. You can listen to something that's streaming or recorded or, or broadcast. And the choices are so many, it really does make a difference. And it's an encouragement to us to have you listening to The Land and the Book. So in my personal Bible study, I have been going through the book of Judges, and you come to the story in the sixth chapter of the story of Gideon. And in that story, the Jezreel Valley factors in very heavily. But there's a lot more to Jezreel than just the Jezreel Valley. It has four names. Well, that's getting ahead of things just a bit, but Jezreel is the focus of Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up after we hear this Holy Land experience. My name is Pam, and I went to the Holy Lands a couple years ago with Moody. Two events stand out for me. One was when we were in Capernaum, and we were standing in the synagogue, realizing that Jesus taught there, and then went across to Peter's mother-in-law's home where he healed her. And to understand the, um, the distance between the synagogue and Peter's mother-in-law's home, But also when we stood on top of the mountain above the meadow where Jesus would have been teaching the 5,000, to feel what it would have been like to have seen that great crowd in that place. So the visit to the Holy Land made me be able to picture the places where Jesus walked and helped me as I read Scripture. Uh, My name is Peter Worrell. I went to Israel a few years ago with Dr. Dyer and had a wonderful time there. 
And it's really helped me to understand the fusion of humanity with uh, the spiritual realm. I actually teach a course which uh, deals with the nature of reality. And there's nothing that shows you that God is interested in this material world more than going to the place where God showed up and walked around and he became thirsty, he became tired uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. So the fusion of the physical and the spiritual world is nowhere more apparent to me than walking around in the very places that Jesus walked. So like many places in the Bible, Jezreel has not one or two or three, but four different meanings. I'm going to let Charlie Dyer unwind all of that as we are kind of uh, bumping along just a bit in our journey. Where are we headed today, Charlie? Today's journey finds us bouncing along through the Jezreel Valley on our way to the foot of Mount Gilboa. We're heading toward the spring of Herod where Gideon chose his 300 men, but that's not what I want to talk about today. Instead, I want you to look carefully at that small hill in the distance. It's about a mile and a half away. It's actually a small spur of Mount Gilboa spilling out into the Jezreel Valley. That's the location of the city of Jezreel, the home of Ahab and Jezebel, the spot where Naboth's vineyard was located, and the final destination of Jehu when he made his famous chariot ride up this very valley. Our focus today is Jezreel, a name that actually has four different meanings in the Bible. And to discover all of them, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea. In Hosea 1, the prophet shared the sordid story of his fractured family. God had Hosea marry Gomer, a woman he described as an adulteress. While some believe this describes her actions before their marriage, I think it pictures her underlying character, which only became obvious after they were married. Hosea specifically says he was the father of their first child, but he pointedly leaves out that description for the birth of Gomer's next two children. God used Hosea's love for his wayward wife to illustrate God's love for his wayward people. But back to our story and the name with four meanings. When his first child was born, God told Hosea to name him Jezreel. The name itself means Yahweh or the Lord scatters, and it was intended to be a sign to the people of Israel. God was about to send them into exile among the nations because of their sin. In Leviticus 26, God told the people what he would ultimately do if they continued to disobey him. I will scatter you among the nations. So this first meaning of Jezreel, the Lord scatters, points to the judgment about to come on the people. But while the first meaning of Jezreel focuses on Israel's coming punishment for disobedience, Hosea wasn't done. He then announced that God's judgment would extend to the dynasty currently ruling Israel. I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Here, Jezreel refers to the town itself, the one that once sat on that hill we can see in the distance. And to understand why the royal family was being judged for what they'd done in this town, we need to go back to the dynasty's founder, Jehu, the general who killed Queen Jezebel. In 2 Kings 9 and 10, we read about Jehu's coup against the king of Israel, a coup that was sanctioned by God. But while God called Jehu to the throne, he didn't approve of all that Jehu did once he became king. To secure his throne, Jehu didn't just kill the current king of Israel and his mother Jezebel. Jehu had the 70 sons of Ahab slaughtered and piled their heads outside the city gates. He also killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left them without a survivor. Even though God had selected Jehu to be king, God held him accountable for the bloodshed of Jezreel, 
the wanton slaughter of all potential rivals to the throne. Now the name Jezreel refers to the city and reminds us that God knew everything that went on in that town and that he would hold accountable those who shed innocent blood. But Hosea isn't finished with Jezreel. He uses the word a third time to refer to the valley we just traveled through. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Hosea identified the very place where the Assyrian army would break the military might of Israel. We don't know the specific time when this happened, but we do know the Assyrians marched against Israel on several occasions over the next 20 years until they completely destroyed the kingdom. Jezreel, God will scatter the nation. Jezreel, a city where a king secured his throne through bloodshed. Jezreel, a valley where God promised to break Israel's military might. Three meanings for the same word, and yet we're still not done. Hosea had one last meaning for the name Jezreel, and to understand it, we need to know just a little bit about ancient agriculture. Farmers sowed their grain by reaching into their seed pouch, grabbing a handful of seed, and throwing it, in effect scattering it across the ground. Hundreds of years after Hosea, Jesus shared a parable about a sower planting his seed this way. As he threw it, some landed in the pathway, some on rocky ground, and some among thorns. But the rest landed on soil that had been plowed and prepared. You see, the name Jezreel is really a play on words. It can mean God scatters, but it can also mean God sows. And Hosea used this final meaning at the end of chapter 1. Though God was about to judge the nation in his day, God had ultimately promised to bless the people of Israel. Hosea ends this chapter by looking forward to the time when the nation will return from the land of exile to the land promised to them by God, because, he says, great will be the day of Jezreel, the day God sows them back into the land. Look one last time out at that hill on which the city of Jezreel once sat, and then look at the valley of Jezreel that stretches out in front of us. Jezreel was a city of bloodshed and a valley of judgment. It was a reminder that God would scatter his people as he held them accountable for their actions. And yet, Jezreel is also a symbol of hope as God promised to sow his people back in the land. So, which meaning of Jezreel fits your life today? The name reminds us that God sees all we do, that actions have consequences. But it also reminds us that God will someday bless all who turn to him. The beginning of this new year is a great time to stop and examine your life. If you've not already done so, why not use this opportunity to turn to God and place your trust in His Son, and then live for Him and wait for His promised return, because, as Hosea promised, great will be the day of Jezreel. Hmm. Great day to look forward to. Thanks, Charlie. You know, one resource that we offer you to stay connected with the Middle East and with our team here at The Land and the Book is our Facebook page, keeping it updated with photos and stories that are current, that are fresh, that will keep you connected all week long. So why not visit the Facebook page when you head to thelandandthebook.org and click on the Facebook icon. That's thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Facebook and there you'll be. Hey, why not connect with us through Facebook? Let us know how the program is touching your life. I'm John Geiger saying thank you for listening. And if you appreciate the broadcast, do share us with a friend, won't you? Let them know where they can listen. Thanks for doing that. And we'll see you back next week here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.